1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Going to start reading from verse 1 right through to verse 11. This is actually the penultimate talk in our series called Transforming Community. So last one next week. Here we go. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, (coughs) and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, Encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. (coughs) Matthew, would you mind grabbing me a water from the back, please? Thank you. The guy's only just back from Somalia and he's already uh, got a job today, but it's good to see you, Matthew. Um, Thanks for for visiting. Um, We are going to have a look at this passage under the following four headings. Um, Thank you very much. I don't know if you picked it up as we went through, but this, this, this text is all about this thing called the day of the Lord. And so we're going to think, first of all, about two mistakes that we can make as Christians, as a church, when it comes to our thinking about the day of the Lord. Two mistakes, two, two lifestyles that we live in response to the day of the Lord. Two experiences of the day of the Lord when it eventually comes. And finally, two ways that our understanding of the day of the Lord builds transforming community. So two mistakes, two lifestyles, two experiences, and two ways it builds our church. (coughs) Last week, we saw, we were reading about those who had died in Christ. Remember, there was this concern in the church um, that those who had died before Jesus came back would somehow lose out, that somehow he would forget about them. And so Paul sort of uh, addressed that issue and... and, um, and said, no, 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 the dead in Christ are not forgotten about. They are very much part of the return of Jesus when he comes back. In fact, they will be first. He'll raise them from the ground first. And so now Paul turns, it's a similar theme, but he, he then turns in his thinking and his writing to the current time. Now, what happens to those of us who are still alive right now? How do we respond then to the second coming of, of Jesus? So that's really the focus of these these 11 verses we've just read. The day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? If you haven't heard that that phrase or that term before, Paul uses it there in in, in verse 2. The day of the Lord uh, was something uh, uh, that was long in the minds of the Hebrew prophets from the 8th century BC, 800 years before Jesus. And then through the time of Jesus and even up to the time of the apostles and, and later on, The day of the Lord has been something that's been important for Jews and Christians forever, pretty much. What is the day of the Lord? It is the coming, the returning of God to his people. 
But it is a day when God, according to the prophets, visits his people, his world, <coughs> in wrath and vengeance. He is going to come against all forms of evil. He is going to deal with all wrongdoing. We said in the creed, don't if you remember that line, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so that's a, a reference to the second coming of Jesus and what God will do <coughs> at that time. And so for Christians, particularly, it is a great hope, the day of the Lord. We look forward to the day of the Lord with great hope. Writing of those wrongs. God will rid the world of evil for good. No suffering. You see in verses 1 and 2, this day of the Lord, it says, will come <clears throat> like a thief in the night. It will come suddenly, unexpectedly, like every thief in the night does come. And then in verse 3, the day of the Lord is like <clears throat> the onset of labour pains. Not only is the day of the Lord coming like a thief, it's sudden and unexpected, but it comes <clears throat> like labour pains at the end of pregnancy. It is inevitable. It's going to happen. That's the natural and final climax to being pregnant, is going through labour and giving birth. So the day of the Lord is sudden, it is unexpected, and yet it's inevitable. Absolutely, definitely will happen. There's no escape. <coughs> and so according to Paul in these verses, there are two mistakes that we can make when it comes to our understanding, our thought about the day of the Lord. The first mistake we can make, number one, is that we can predict when it's going to happen. Or in other words, we control, we can control it. I remember I was shopping a number of years ago <coughs> in, uh, I think it was Top Man. Uh, do they even still, are they still even going Top Man? I'm not sure. Yeah, they are. Well, when I was cool and trendy, back in my 20s, I was in Top Man and there was a t-shirt that you could buy and the picture was a picture of Jesus on the t-shirt and, and underneath it said, Jesus is coming, quick, look busy. And the idea is you can, you can wear this and give your mates a good laugh or whatever. But, of course, the idea behind that was you can live pretty much any way you want just now but when Jesus is coming, you can, you can kind of guess it, you can clean up your act, you can live in a way it's going to, um, you know, get the thumbs up from Jesus. So the first mistake we can make is predict the day <coughs> of the Lord. And many attempts at prediction ha have uh, been noticed through history. Uh, you might be familiar with the name uh, of a man called Harold Camping. He's dead now. He died at the age of 92 just a few years ago. But he made uh, himself pretty famous and pretty rich by claiming to predict the day of the apocalypse, you know, the day when uh, the Lord is going to return and hellfire and brimstone is going to come down upon the world and that kind of thing. In 1994, he said at the time, with absolute confidence, the day and the month and obviously the year when the, the Lord was going to return. And then, of course, 1994 came and went and, and, and camping said, no, I, I made some mathematical errors in my calculations. I've revised it. I've gone back to the Bible. I've, I've got my calculator out, etc." And uh, it's now the 21st of May, 2011. And so, of course, 21st of May, 2011 came along. <coughs> I've got a bit of an article here, just to let you know. Uh, if, 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 this is in America, of course, but uh, in California. Um, it says here that by 2011, you know, the build-up to the big day, his radio network owned 66 stations in North America alone with assets worth 120 million. But it was all the... Odd behaviour that happened up 
till the moment when Howard Camping predicted the end of the world. It said there, in, in America, people were said to have rushed into marriages. They ran up credit card debts. They resigned their jobs. They gave away their position, possessions. There was even a mini boom in firms offering to look after the pets of those who believed they were about to be raptured. Others paid up to websites that would send out farewell letters to their friends and their relations left behind. In some cases, the reaction was more tragic. A mother in Palmdale, California, stabbed her two young daughters and cut her own throat to avoid the calamity. Fortunately, all survived. <coughs> and so on and so forth. And then, of course, the 21st of May came along and went again. And uh, that was pretty much the end of his enterprise. But the mistake that camping makes is not reading these verses. You cannot predict the day of the Lord. But it's not just religious fundamentals who try and predict the end of the world as well. Scientists do it as well. They've been doing it from the time of the Enlightenment up until now. <clears throat> Whether it's the big rip theory, the big crunch theory, the big bounce theory, the big freeze theory, theories are discussed and replaced. This is how it's going to happen. This is when it's going to happen in so, so, so many years. But the point that Paul is making is not the religious fundamentalists who can work it out. It's not the scientific boffins who can work it out. The day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night, unexpected and sudden and like labour pains. But look at verse 2. He writes to these Christians, these early Christians, and says, you yourselves are fully aware. This, this, this young group of believers already know this stuff. Don't predict it. You can't predict it, he says. The second mistake we can make then is in verse 3. We can deny it. Rubbish. Not happening. Look at verse 3. People are saying there is peace and security and sudden destruction will come upon them. Peace and security. All is good. Sigh of relief was, was almost palpable when <clears throat> the North Korean leader shook hands with the South Korean leader when they stepped across the border, hand in hand. The media went crazy, rolling back the threat of nuclear war. Relax. We have peace now. There is security in our world. We can just get on with living. The end of the world isn't just as close as we thought after all. All is well. But St. Paul says in these verses very clearly, both of those mistakes, whether it's predicting the end of the world or denying the end of the world <clears throat> will affect the way that we live in the here and now. Either mistake will change the way we are living. And Paul says, if you either deny the day of the Lord or you think you can predict it's coming, he says, people who do that, who think like that, they are walking, they are living in darkness, they are asleep. He says they are blissfully unaware of that great, an awesome day that is coming. And the reason why he wants to be so clear in these few verses to, to the church in Thessalonica and, and therefore to us today <coughs> is that we can't build a transforming countercultural people if we are in denial about the day of the Lord or if we think we can predict when it's coming. Because if we get our thoughts wrong about that final day that the Bible is so, so clear about, we will not live our faith giving our lives to one another. We will not lay our lives down for one another. We will not love. We will not sacrificially serve 
our city. See, all this is connected to, in some ways, our view of the end of the world, or lack of our view. So he's writing in here to say, let's not get caught in either extreme. Don't get caught up with the the weirdo predictions from the religious fundamentalists on YouTube, (coughs) or the people with the PhDs after their names. But don't live your life in denial either. Two mistakes we can make. So that brings us then on to the next section here, two lifestyles that therefore flow out of our understanding of the day of the Lord. (coughs) We see this in verses 4 right through to verse 8. Two lifestyles. Paul says to the church, the believers in Thessalonica, he says, not you, you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. See, what we believe about the day of the Lord determines how we live now. And that's true even if you don't believe about the day of the Lord, because it will shape how you're living now. Paul says, don't make either mistake. Don't doze through this. Don't be unprepared and asleep. Don't be unconcerned and drunk. The house, of course, is easy prey, isn't it? If those inside are either fast asleep or intoxicated, you can easily go in and rob them. But if the owner is awake, if the owner is ready, prepared, then no loss will be suffered. And that's the point that Paul is getting at with the church. He's not giving security advice about how to shore up your home, go and get double glazing and all that stuff. Paul's point is to the church, not you, he says. Be sober, be ready, be lucid, be mindful, because it really impacts how you live now. And so he says to the church, be sober, be in your right mind. In verse eight, having put on this armor, the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. Get ready, he says, be prepared. And this is how it will look (coughs) in everyday life in faith and love. Living out your life in faith and love now. Remember back in the the first talk in this series, Paul writes the words of his prayer and he says, I I, I remember you constantly in my prayers, remembering before our golden father, your work of faith, your labour of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Work of faith, labour of love, steadfastness of hope. And there he is again saying, that breastplate of faith and love. Action. See, they had a reputation for service, this church. They had a reputation, of course, for for love and kindness. They're an example in the region. We saw that in our first talk in Macedonia, in Achaia and beyond. How this group of former pagans converted to Christianity how they turned from idols to serve God, how they waited from his son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, from very early on in their understanding of the gospel, in their receiving faith in Jesus, they had an understanding, a firm understanding of the day of the Lord. Their view of the day of the Lord affected their ethics, and they were renowned for their faith and their love, their lifestyles. We saw a few weeks ago, Paul was calling for relational purity, a strong and sound work ethic in the church. All these things are connected to how we see 
the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord and how you understand it will, will, will have its impact in the present day through faith and love and acts of service and kindness. But also, he says, you put on the, the helmet of hope in the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a future thing. Because the point with all this is the day of the Lord gives us hope for the future. Imagine looking with hope to this great and awesome day when Jesus returns to remove all evil and judge all sin and destroy all suffering. I think, I think in one sense we all want the day of the Lord to come. We all want, I think whether, whether we are religious or irreligious, whether we are Christian or any religion, we all want to look forward to that day and we hope for that day when evil will be judged. We don't want any waffle, any uncertainty. We want that day when everything that is evil will be shown for what it is and destroyed. Evil weeded out and dealt with. Nothing will go amiss. All wickedness identified and punished. All injustice that there has ever been crushed. Historians tell us time and again that they believe the 20th century, our last century, <coughs> was the most bloody of all centuries. The most loss of life in such a short space of time compared to all the centuries prior to that, as far as records show. But our current century, the 21st century, may match the previous century in terms of blood loss, genocide, death. We want the day of the Lord. We want an end to all that. We want to see the injustice of power in the hands of evil people and evil systems gone. We want the rich who are continually exploiting the poor for profit, removed. We want, the, we, we want, we want racism to be weeded out. We want sectarian, sectarianism gone. We want the end to natural resources being exploited. We want an end to human-made destruction of ecosystems and natural resources. We hate it. And we want an end to it. But for all our efforts at legislation, all of our charity money, all of our good works. Finally, we feel powerless to destroy all this on our own. We look forward to the day of the Lord, whether we use those words or not. Even on a more personal level, each of us carries hurts, pain, times in our lives that other people have, have wronged us and have done evil against us, when we have been the subject of sin and the injustice of others. <coughs> Whether it's on the personal level or the global level, the day of the Lord shows us that God hates all of this as well. In fact, God hates it more so because he plans to act finally and decisively to rid us of this evil. And, and those of you who are familiar with the Bible will know that it ends in this, this stirring picture of, of new life, of life cleansed of evil and hatred and war and poverty and suffering and death, all gone because of the day of the Lord. And, and we yearn for this. Our hearts ache. We all want the day of the Lord in some sense. But I would also put it to you that in another sense, we don't want the day of the Lord. Why do you think people make one of those two mistakes 
when it comes to our thoughts about the day of the Lord, either prediction or denial? Why do you think people make those mistakes? It's not because they are stupid. It's because they suspect that they themselves will not come off too well in the day of the Lord. In our honest moments, if the day of the Lord is for real, as Paul teaches, as Jesus affirms, in our honest moments, then we suspect that we will not come off too well ourselves. And the reason for that is we carry our own guilt. We may or may not have had a hand in genocide. We may or may not have participated in killing or other atrocities, but neither are we, each of us, completely free of this this impulse. We have hatred in our hearts. We may harbour racism within us. We may have sectarian tendencies. We might turn our eyes away from the poor. We even look down on evildoers. You know, we might, may not have the means or the motive or the opportunity to express what is deep down in our hearts. But it doesn't mean we're not free of guilt before God's perfect bar of justice. You never know. This might shudder to make you think of this, but if you lived in different circumstances, different times, maybe a different culture, different society that had different values, (coughs) and you had different opportunities, who knows? what we may be capable of. See, the problem with the day of the Lord is that all wrongdoing is crushed. All hatred is killed. And that includes any that is within you and any that's within me. So who wants the day of the Lord to come on them? You might want it to come on others, on those bad guys, on Hitler and Stalin and all those evil people, but not on me. I'm not so keen. But the resounding point is that the day of the Lord is cosmic. There is not one person, living or dead, that can avoid it. So we've seen two mistakes we can make in our thinking about the day of the Lord. Two lifestyles that flow from our thinking of the day of the Lord. We want the day of the Lord, we don't want it at the same time. And so two experiences of that final day, when it happens. And by the way, when we say day, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is all going to happen in 24 hours. The time of the Lord, the moment of the Lord, the day of the Lord. So two experiences of that final day. Paul speaks to the Thessalonian church, these early Christians, that they might have the hope of salvation. That they might look forward to the day of the Lord. How is it possible for someone to look forward to this great and awful day of the Lord? How can God destroy all evil without destroying us? How can God kill hate without killing us? How can he crush injustice without crushing us? But see, verse 9, it speaks with such confidence. It says, For God has not destined us for wrath, anger, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says to the church, You have been chosen. 
You have, you have been predestined to avoid wrath and receive salvation. You see, this kind of teaching that we see here in other places in Scripture leaves people rightly questioning the whole thing. How can that be fair? How is it that God elects the good religious people for salvation where others get wrath and anger? I cannot believe in a God who does things like that. That, that just sounds so unfair to me. God of love. How is that loving? If that is your question, it's a good question. But also shows in some ways that you haven't understood the gospel. The Christian gospel, you see, we have to understand the Christian gospel is not fair. It is the, the, the reason why Paul can say that we are chosen, we're not chosen or destined for wrath is this. The reason he can say we're not chosen is this. In the gospel, we see that Jesus was chosen to receive wrath and punishment. That's how you can have confidence, he says. St. Peter, one of the other apostles and Bible writers, says this. 1 Peter 1, he says, Jesus was, listen, chosen before the foundation of the world to die. Jesus, in other words, was chosen to face the day of the Lord before the foundations of the world. I mean, philosophically, that is really hard to understand. Somehow or other, before you and I and anything else was ever created, Jesus was chosen for wrath. He was elected for wrath. But that is the reason that you were not chosen for wrath. Jesus was. And this is what happened at the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus went through his own personal day of the Lord. It, it came down upon him. The Son of God, from all eternity past, went through his own day of the Lord. The God of justice came down against injustice when he came down upon his Son as he died on the cross. God's hatred against evil was poured out on Jesus when he died on the cross. But see, the key in all this is in verse 10. Obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 10, who died for us. See, the perfect, just, righteous wrath and fury of God against all evil, all sin, all injustice that should have been stored up for us at the day of the Lord, instead says Paul, it was poured out onto Jesus Christ for us. The sword of God's justice fell on Christ so that, listen, so that the grace of God's favour might fall on us. Jesus, in other words, faced the storm alone so that we could walk right through the storm on the day of the Lord. That's how we can have hope. So no, the gospel is not fair. We do not get what we deserve. And that's why it's good news. The gospel of Jesus 
is amazing, it is awe-inspiring, and it is transforming because when you see what Jesus has done for you, because of the great love of God for you, when you see that, it, it melts your heart. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, said, when he looked to the cross of Jesus Christ, love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So when you look at Jesus, when you realise he went through that day so that you don't have to, so that you can have this great hope, it destroys your hatred. It dissolves your bitterness. There's no place for malice or anger when someone sees what Jesus has done for them. If you don't trust Christ, you have no hope, frankly, on the day of the Lord. <coughs> so two, what are they again? Two mistakes, two lifestyles, two experiences, and finally, two ways this stuff that we're learning here builds transforming community. Sometimes it's just weird and odd talking about the day of the Lord and the end of the world and Jesus coming and fury and wrath and all that stuff. But Paul is keen to point out in all these verses and all this teaching that it has effect now, today. And so he says in verse 11 to the church, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This stuff we're to read and, 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 and be transformed by, but, but, but use it, he says, work it into one another and, and use it to build one another up, encourage one another. Church, this, this is our hope. And this stuff, according to that verse there, builds transforming community here at Foundation Church. And so we work it, among other things, into the very fabric of who we are and, and what we are. So, so, so this hope that he talks about here on the day of the Lord that we, we look forward to with great anticipation builds us up to love and serve one another more, to show love and justice more to the world. It gives us motivation to fight against, against injustice now, knowing that God's heart is for the justice of, for the poor and for the vulnerable. That's one of the reasons, by the way, why we, why we partner with International Justice Mission, the largest anti-slavery organization in the world, run by Christian lawyers and support workers who, who obtain justice for those who do not have it in countries that don't have firm and strong legal systems. Because we believe that there's a day when Christ is coming and justice will come to all. And so we want to reflect that and mirror that with the hope that we have by supporting this amazing ministry, IJM. It's one of the ways we do it. This hope of the day of the Lord, in all things though, shapes our revolutionary ethics as a church. Not, not that we've written new ethics by the way, but as we follow what the Bible teaches and how we should live our lives, we realise that is revolutionary. It is so different to what we see out in the world. So let me just finish by giving two ways that this teaching can and should build us up, build within us transforming community. It can happen formally, number one, and it can happen informally, number two. So formally, how can we use this teaching to build one another up, as he says in verse 11? 
Well, we've been doing it since the day Foundation Church started, but I just want to highlight to you how we're doing it so that you might enter into it even more. We rehearse, number one, the great storyline of the Bible from creation through to the fall, the impact of sin, the good news of Jesus and his eventual coming again. We rehearse that in very varied forms, week after week after week, reminding ourselves there is more to this, there is more than what's happening just now. We use the creeds as we've done this evening to remind us Christ is coming again. We use the confessions of faith. We use catechisms, all of which point to their great hope of the day of the Lord. We use songs to remind us he's coming on the clouds. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. Every knees will bow before the lion and the lamb. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? We love that song here. I love it. I was talking about the day of the Lord. What about this one here? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found. Through the storm he is Lord. Lord of all. What song's that? Cornerstone. Love your attention. Thank you. Cornerstone. We're going to sing it later. That's why, that's why I wrote it down. But in this and so many other ways as a church, we formally seek to sow these seeds of hope by referring to that final day when Christ comes. Formally we do it. Secondly and finally, informally. When we scatter, when we leave what we do here and go and do life and, and live life and, and go home and, and be in and out of one another's lives ourselves. We take this stuff we're learning, we take this truth of the day of the Lord and we drill it deeper into one another. We intensify it, we augment it so that this truth is not just something in our heads but something that we receive into our hearts and it transforms the way we live our lives. As I mentioned a few moments ago, chat about the day of the Lord is not common among Christians. Let's just face it. It's not common at all. But it's not common among Christians. And this is such a key part of that big storyline of the scriptures. And it should be. Look, I'm not, I'm not saying that we lead on this when we're explaining the Christian faith to our unbelieving friends at the water cooler at work. Did you know, one day there's going to be a day, you know, when hellfire and brims they will hear the wrong thing most likely we don't maybe, maybe don't start there but the fact that paul includes this in his earliest of teachings to this group of former pagans goes to show that he thought the day of the lord was not only a thing you should know but it is crucially important informing our awareness of ourselves and our lives lived day by day and so it should be important for us it should be part of our evangelism. It should be definitely part of our discipleship. These one another components that we're building up more and more. It means that we encourage and exhort each other in our behaviours, in our attitudes, in our ethics. It is part of our discipleship arsenal of encouragement. Are you depressed? He is coming. Are you, are you dissatisfied with the situation in the world? He is coming. Are you losing interest in faithfully and passionately serving Jesus? He is coming. Are you wandering away from revolutionary Christian living? He is coming. Are you feeling lackluster towards evangelism? He is coming. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this, this teaching, for these, these verses, which aren't necessarily part of our common Christian 
vocabulary. And yet we see through your word and through Jesus and through the apostles and prophets that this was such a key teaching. Forgive us, Lord, for minimizing it or putting it to one side. Instead, would you teach us how to take this, this teaching and use it to encourage one another and to build one another up. Father, help us to think right about the day of the Lord. <coughs> help us to live our lives in view of that final day. Let us work for justice. Let us work for holiness. Let us display love and commitment because we know that is your heart and that is what one day we will see in full. May we see it come now, Lord Jesus, and enter suffering and into sickness and into death and into war. Father, I thank you we have this hope. As we come to take this bread and the wine just now, as we eat it together as a church, may you teach us and demonstrate to us more and more what you have done through Jesus Christ, your son. And we look forward to the day of his return because he took that punishment for us on the cross we look forward to that day with great hope and great assurance. It's in his name we pray and for his glory. Amen.